The Productive Woman, Episode 468. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan, and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Well, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. In this episode, I will share with you my conversation with author and financial expert, Emily Guy Birkin, as part of our Productive Living series. You'll find more information about Emily, along with links to resources she recommends and the various ways you can connect with her online, all in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 468. This episode is brought to you by Calm. I wonder, do you ever find yourself aimlessly doom scrolling? With new apps fighting for our attention every day, it can be hard to put our phones down and feel present in our everyday life. With Calm, practice exercises that help you feel more present to the life around you and have a deeper connection with the people you love. Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation, giving you the power to calm your mind and change your life. Calm recognizes that everyone faces unique challenges in their daily lives, that mental health needs differ from person to person, and that time for things like meditation and even just mindfulness practices in general may vary. And since self-care practices are so deeply personal, Calm strives to provide content that caters to your preferences and needs. So they have guided meditations that range from focuses on anxiety and stress, relaxation and focus, to building habits and taking care of your physical well-being. They have sleep stories with hundreds of titles to choose from, including sleep meditations and calming music that will have you drifting off to dreamland quickly and naturally. And you know how much I rely on their sleep stories to get to sleep when I need to. They even have expert-led talks on topics such as tips for overcoming stress and anxiety, handling grief, improving self-esteem, building resilience, and caring for relationships, and so much more. The Calm app puts the tools you need to feel better in your back pocket. And if you go to calm.com slash TPW, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription with new content added every week. So you can stress less, sleep more, and live better with Calm. I personally am grateful to have found Calm a couple of years ago and use their app pretty much every day, whether it's to help me get to sleep or to listen to one of the guided meditations or one of the talks that I mentioned earlier. Such a useful tool to have for helping you kind of get control of your mind and and get focused. And as I said, for listeners of The Productive Woman, Calm offers an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash TPW. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash TPW for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. Once again, that's calm.com slash TPW. I am delighted to introduce to the Productive Woman listeners, Emily Guy Birkin. 
Emily is a former educator, a self-professed lifelong money nerd, and a Plutus Award-winning freelance writer specializing in the scientific research behind irrational money behaviors. I love that phrase. Uh, With a focus on helping people take their finances from stressful to stress-free, she is the author of five books, including The Five Years Before You Retire and Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. I have been so looking forward to talking with her about how financial matters kind of fit into a meaningfully productive life. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm just delighted that you're here. We were talking a little bit before the recording started. A lot of the things that you've written about are very interesting to me. And I admit for a professional woman as I am, uh, I still feel a little lack of confidence when it comes to dealing with money stuff. So I'm I'm really looking forward to some of the insights that you're going to be able to share with us. But before we get there, maybe I gave a little bit of an introduction to you, but maybe could we start by you telling us a little more about who you are, where you are, what you do, whatever you think might be useful for us to know as we get into this conversation? Uh, Sure. So I like to tell people that I tripped and fell backwards into writing about money. (laughs) Um, I am actually an English teacher by training. I taught high school English for four years. And in 2010, my husband and I moved from Columbus, Ohio to Lafayette, Indiana for a new job for my husband. I also happened to be pregnant with our first child who, because I'm really good at timing, was due at the beginning of the following school year. So (laughs) that first year, the plan was I was going to take one year off from teaching because obviously no one was going to hire me to immediately go on to maternity leave. And then as further proof of my excellent timing, we had trouble selling our uh, house in Columbus because we put it on the market one month after the first time homebuyer credit expired. Mm. So just, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. And so it took us nearly a year to sell it. So during that time, we went from two incomes to one, uh, from two people in the house to to three, and from one mortgage to two. So things are a little tight financially. So I decided to start looking for some freelancing work that I could do. I have always been a writer. That's what I wanted to do from tiny childhood. And one of the first gigs that I landed was for a personal finance website. It's called ptmoney.com. And that may sound like it is completely out of left field, but my dad was a financial planner and I've always been very interested in finance. Um, I didn't really quite get the fact that when dad would talk about his work, I would be sitting there, you know, wrapped with attention where, while my sister and my cousin's eyes were <laughs> glazing over and they, they could not pay attention. So I kind of just started from there and I brought to this writing both the kind of literary sensibility that I have. You know, I, I look at it as a storytelling exercise when I write about money, as well as some base knowledge that comes of growing up in the financial industry, but also I had kind of a foot in the layperson's world as well, because I, like you, felt intimidated by some aspects of, of finance, even though my my dad was uh, in the industry, in part because I knew I could always just say, dad, can you help me with this <laughs> if I needed something? So I kind of brought all of that together and uh, found that it was an excellent fit. And my one year away from teaching has now become 13. 
And I have been writing exclusively in the personal finance community pretty much all of this time and found that I really, really love kind of thinking about how money fits into our lives and how to make the topic palatable to people who'd rather think about something else. And that's something I feel like teaching gave me is if I could get, you know, teenagers interested in a Midsummer Night's Dream, I can get um, people who are scared about what they need to do for retirement, um, feel more confident and ready to, uh, to make the decisions they need to make. Yeah, that's a great, a great analogy. My oldest daughter just started her second year of teaching. She's a high school and middle school choir teacher. And a big part of her job is getting kids to be interested in the parts of choir, for instance, the parts of music that, that maybe they aren't interested in. They may have come in, I just want to sing, but she needs them to learn music theory and all these other things. And, and so part of her job is finding ways to get them interested and engaged with the parts of it that they didn't think they wanted to know about. Yes, yes. And it is, um, that was one of the most satisfying aspects of my job when I was teaching was when, so for instance, I had one really tough class who, uh, and it was specifically Midsummer Night's Dream where I kind of found a way, you know, I'm assigning parts for us to do kind of a, a like a table read. And so I give the kid with the snarkiest sense of humor. Homer, the part of Oberon, um, and of course, and uh, and he just leans into it, and all the other kids uh, kind of like followed his lead, and we all had a ball. And you know, walking in that morning, they were like, "Oh, Shakespeare!" <laughs> <laughs> How fun! That all makes total sense, actually, with the background that you have, how you got into this. That, and I think that's interesting. You didn't have to be a yeah, for lack of a better phrase, professionally trained financial planner to be able to uh, learn about and communicate these concepts around money, and especially with your background growing up with your dad. I want to talk about some of the things that you that you write about and that you've spoken about in other places. But before we dig into the topic of mindful financial independence, I'd love to maybe provide a little context for how you personally make a meaningfully productive life for yourself, uh, how you accomplish the things that you're doing and, and make time with a family and all the other things for the professional work that you're doing. I, I just think it's always, we can always learn from each other on how to do those sorts of things and, and hearing how people with different kinds of professional lives and different kinds of personal lives make it all work or or don't, <laughs> uh, I think is is helpful for us. And so maybe as a starting point with what you have going on in your life, if there is such a thing for you as a typical day, what might that look like? So I was diagnosed as an adult with ADHD, which uh, kind of put a lot of things uh, in context and made sense. And it helped me understand that my productivity can't fit into somebody else's mold. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to find what works for me. And so what lately has been working for me and that uh, is, is uh, I feel like the, the best process and the best, you know, typical day that I've ever come across in all the years that I've been trying to find one is uh, I am a morning person. So um, I wake up early 
my goal is to wake up um, around five or five thirty, and I spend about an hour to an hour and a half still in my pajamas. You know, I, I brush my teeth and I go straight to the to the computer and I work on whatever article is due that day. Hmm. I do that in part because I found that one of the most satisfying aspects of being productive for me is when I feel like I'm getting away with something or getting a jump on something. Mm -hmm. So by doing it in the morning early, it feels like, oh, it, it's not real time. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing, I'm working on this outside of real time. And then because I have about an hour's worth of work into whatever it is that I'm working on, I, once I have, um, uh, gotten to the point where I've gotten the kids off to school and everything. I want to go back to it because I'm feeling like, oh, I need to finish that. I want to finish that. So I, I wake up that early and I I get started. Uh, I try at um, to stop at 6.30 and go for a walk around the neighborhood. And I'm generally back by around 7.15, by which point the kids are up, my husband's up. We have breakfast. Um, I have the all-important coffee and wordle moment, which is the <laughs> highlight of every day. <laughs> and then we get the kids off to school. From there, because my favorite thing to do right after the kids have um, left for school is kind of take care of like, I, I think of it as housekeeping stuff, but, you know, email uh, responses. I do a lot of work tracking expenses and things like that. Uh, that's one way in which I'm kind of a money nerd is I've got a color-coded spreadsheet. So I spend time on that. Uh, I make sure I know what's coming up. And by the time I've done that, it's generally no later than like 9.30 and I can get back to my article. I will work on um, whatever kind of paid work I'm doing. So my article or I do coaching, financial coaching for folks. So if I have uh, coaching clients that I'm talking to or anything like that until about 3.30, which is when the kids are done with school. And that kind of leads into the evening. My my goal is to spend a little time with the kids, uh, have us work together a little bit to tidy up because nobody touches anything and it's like a tornado <laughs> struck. I don't know how it happens. <laughs> and then get uh, started on dinner or uh, get started on getting the kids to their after school activities because um, they're in the thick of it. I've got a 13 year old and almost year old and so they're in the thick of, of uh, after school activities and then usually by the evening I am wrung out <laughs> um, we do have one weekly ritual we have family movie nights it kind of switches around for right now it's Tuesday night but it depends on the kids after school activities where my husband makes homemade pizza mm -hmm. and we take turns choosing the movie to watch so everyone gets uh, one turn a month to choose the movie and then I am generally in bed by nine <laughs> because as I said, I'm a morning person, not a night person. I love hearing that. It's interesting to me that you sort of flip the idea. Lots of productivity people talk about having a morning routine where you're, you know, journaling and you're, you're doing your workout and you're doing all these things before you start work. And there are good reasons why that makes sense for a lot of people, but you have flip that in the sense that you, you know, as you said, you get up, you brush your teeth and you, and you go right to work to get started. It makes a lot of sense to me that that works for you. You know, there is a concept out there that work that's interrupted uh, keeps our attention. We have this urge to get back to it. So that's, you're kind of taking advantage of that, which maybe helps um, given you overcome the you know, whatever difficulties might be posed by the ADHD you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Getting started 
on things is the hardest part. Mm -hmm. And I've tried so many of the common suggestions of, you know, just set a timer, you know, make sure you do that, you know, swallow that frog. That's kind of what I'm doing, but it doesn't feel like it because I'm still like, you know, rubbing the sleep out of my eyes and like, I don't have time to think about it. Uh, you just sort of snuck, sneak in there and get started before you realize exactly. what you're doing. I like and it. Uh, when, you know, I, as I mentioned, wordle and coffee is is like this sacred ritual for me in the morning. Uh, and someone once suggested, <laughs> well, why don't you just save it until lunchtime? You have to get a certain amount done before you can do it. And I was like, but I don't want to. Wordle goes with my <laughs> coffee. And so I realized, well, I can if I just get up earlier. And then, you know, the house is quiet. No one's trying to get my attention. The kids, uh, um, it used to be when the kids were smaller, they they had radar. Like if I tried to get up early to do some, some work, they'd be like, mom is awake and not thinking about me. What do I do? <laughs> um, whereas now they sleep in. That's great. Uh, but it's, uh, it's what works for me. And when I realized that I don't have to fit myself into someone else's notion of what productivity is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. I got a lot more self-compassionate and a lot more productive. Yeah. A great reminder for all of us. We don't, well, I think we can learn from other people and get ideas, but we shouldn't be measuring ourselves or our productivity or anything else by what somebody else is doing. You can mm -hmm. listen and learn and think, hmm, maybe that would, I can tweak my system to, to work that way. But the fact that you're not doing what somebody else does or what some, you know, guru says we all should be doing is irrelevant. What matters is, does it work for you? And obviously it does because you're getting the things done that matter to you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just real quick, just because I'm always curious uh, about uh, what people use in terms of productivity tools. Do you have any particular uh, tools that you use that help you to be productive in the way that you want to be, whether it's paper or digital, calendars, apps, um, planners, anything like that? What What do you use? I, uh, I discovered bullet journaling. Oh, gosh, it's been like six years ago now. And I have tweaked it to make it work for me. And so the main thing is um, why bullet journaling works for me is I don't use the the system that uh, that is suggested, you know, with the with the you know open dot means one thing, closed dot means another, and and migrating things. What I do is each day I have a page and I separate out my activities based on what they are. So I've got um, like a list of writing I need to accomplish, a list of correspondence I need to take care of, um, things for myself, errands. And then I will also include like if I've got kind of other work like coaching or I'm working on a podcast with my sister or something like that, that'll go in its own category. And so I do that and I draw with pretty colors and color it in. And then I often will draw a little um, cartoon with it. And the reason why this has been so helpful is I look forward to it. I look forward to doing that. And so it's not just the um, process of writing it down. It's the fact that I want to do it every day. Whereas, you know, things like um, I have Google Calendar, I have Calendar Alerts, um, and they pop up and they don't 
they don't make a dent in my mind because like, yeah, 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 whatever, I'll do that. <laughs> so having the bullet journal, which is another kind of like evening ritual that I like to do that I, I really enjoy uh, the drawing. I really enjoy using markers and color and, and um, really good pens um, makes it this thing that I viscerally enjoy uh, that helps me stay focused and productive and know what's coming up so that I'm, you know, I, I'm sure you've, We've all had that experience of being caught flat-footed by something that you'd forgotten about, and it just shows up on your calendar like, oh my goodness, I got to do this in 10 minutes. Oh, so that doesn't happen when I am uh, taking care of my bullet journaling practice on a regular basis. That sounds like a great use of a, of a bullet journal and another example of how you can use a tool in a way that works for you. You don't have to do it the way the, you know, the experts say it's supposed to work. Exactly. Thank you for sharing a little bit of sort of your your work mode, I guess, or your process. I want to get into the the meat of the reason we're talking today, and that is to kind of look at this concept of that you've talked about of mindful financial independence. Your all your website, your materials talk about your your focus of helping people take their finances from stressful to stress free. And you refer in various places to this concept of mindful financial independence. Before we dig down into sort of how you get that and, and all that, what do you mean by that? What does mindful financial independence mean? So I came up with that term in part as a response to the FIRE movement. FIRE stands for uh, Financial Independence Retire Early which if you are at all within the financial space, you'll have heard about, uh, it's been talked about quite a bit in the last 15 years or so. And there's actually, it's nothing really new about it. It's, um, uh, you know, people have been talking about early retirement um, and being financially independent for a long time. But what this new wave of financial independence talks about is finding a way to kind of flip the script instead of like, you know, working to get money, to get the things you want. It's about, you know, tr recognizing that you're trading your time for money. And so you want to trade as little time as possible for as much money as possible. And the best way to do that is to be very frugal while you're making a certain amount of money and investing a huge amount of the money that you make so that you speed up the day when you no longer need to work for a living. And I think the, the FIRE movement and financial independence is fantastic. Something that's troubled me, however, is how though the FIRE movement is very much about anti-consumerism, saying like you don't need to have a new iPhone every year. Uh, you can go two years without buying new clothes, you know, those sorts of things and saying like, you know, say no to the constant drumbeat to spend, spend, spend. I think that's great, but you can end up replacing a kind of mindless consumption with a kind of mindless acquisition. And so oftentimes I will see people who first get into the fire movement so focused on the number in their investment accounts or the number in the bank account that it's a similar kind of mindlessness. They are similarly just accumulating this money without really thinking about what it means. I have seen where people will retire early, like in their 30s or 40s, and then kind of they'll have a great year or two and then realize like, I don't know what I want to do with my life 
because they were so focused on this, you know, finish line without really thinking about it in the context of their entire life. So that's where where I came up with this idea of uh, mindful financial independence, because ultimately it's not about the money. Whether you are, you know, pursuing fire or you're working a traditional job until you're in your 60s or 70s and then retire or whatever, it's not ultimately about the money. It's about creating a life that works for you, whether you're working, whether you're retired, whatever is happening in your life at the time. And money just tends to be the tool we use to get there and the shorthand we use to kind of measure our own success. And I want people to turn that on its head and say like that we don't need to measure ourselves by money. Um, Money is a tool and we're not going to be able to live without it, without that tool. But by going for a mindful sense of financial independence, looking at what is it that would make my life actually better? Is it really that I need $400,000 in the bank or, you know, whatever? Is it really that I need $4 million to be able to retire early? Or is it that I need to be able to have afternoons off to twice a week so that I can, you know, go to my son's soccer game? You know, what is it that's really going to make a difference in your life? And because a lot of times the decision or the the improvement is going to come from something that has nothing to do with money. And so if you're so focused on like, I want to fire, I want to retire early. And so you're working overtime or, you know, working really hard and miss every single one of your son's soccer games you'll get to that finish line financially eventually, but at what cost? So those are the things that I I really want people to take the time to think about because so often our brains kind of short circuit when it comes to money and we focus on the number rather than on what it means. Yeah, and and, and as you were describing that, uh, that FIRE concept, what I kept thinking is it, it sounds like it could very easily sort of fall over into kind of deferring life until that number is achieved and deferring happiness and think, and there's nothing wrong with planning for the future, but we live in the now. Mm -hmm. And whether it's about money or anything else, if we are telling ourselves, I'm going to be happy when this happens in the future, I'm going to be happy when I have X dollars in the bank. I'm going to be happy when I retire. I'm going to be happy when I get married. I'm going to be happy when I have a child. I'm going to be happy when my child grows up and leaves. What? Anytime we are thinking to ourselves that happiness is something that will happen or satisfaction or whatever is something that will happen in the future when some other event occurs... Uh, we're we're deferring life and we're fooling ourselves because we'll still be the same person on that day as we are now. And uh, if we are dissatisfied now, we're going to be dissatisfied then. Yes. And something that I feel like I see a lot in the personal finance uh, media and community, and then just it's human nature, is this kind of binary thinking that you're either hedonistically spending all the money that you get or you are responsibly putting money aside for the future, or alternatively, you are, you know, putting money aside for a future that you can't can't promise, or you are, you know, living your life to the fullest and uh, no worries about the consequences. And there's no way, it's very hard to get into the nuance of what happens, which is that all of your life is all of your life. And so you deserve mm-hmm. to be happy 
all of your life or have the opportunity for happiness all of your life. So, you know, you don't want to put happiness on the other side of a finish line because you you don't know that you'll get to that finish line. For one thing, um, my yeah. my husband's grandfather, who I, I never got a chance to meet, passed away in the airport on the way to the retirement home he and his and his wife, my husband's grandmother, had purchased. Oh. So he worked all his life and he wasn't that old. I think he was 67 or 68 and they'd bought a retirement home, I believe in Florida. Uh, they touched down on, in the airport in the new state and he had a massive heart attack. So there's there's no guarantees. On the other hand, you know, living as if there's no tomorrow <laughs> um, can leave your, your uh, future self really up a creek. So yeah. finding a, a balance between recognizing that, you know what, spending a little extra money to update your kitchen is going to pay off in so much happiness because it'll be easier to cook. You'll be teaching your kids to cook. You're going to have more room to have family over for meals and things like that. And you can imagine having, you know, teaching your grandchildren to cook in that kitchen or, you know, thinking about like, okay, or is that money going to be better placed in a retirement account or something like that um, because I don't have anything set aside for the future and I don't want to be living in my grandchild's basement. So <laughs> having those kinds of uh, mindful um, thoughts about what is going to be the best use of the resources you have. And that's not just money. That's also resources like time, attention, emotion, all of those things yeah. is a, a, something I really would like to see more of us doing rather than kind of falling victim to the mindlessness of either consuming because it's, I mean, you don't even have to get out of bed to buy stuff these days. You know, it's right there on your phone mm -hmm. or mindlessly uh, accumulating funds because you have placed value on the dollar amount rather than on, you know, what's your life can look like if you, you use your, your resources well. Yeah, I love that. Such a really profound and important concept to think about. So how do we as women achieve this, this mindful financial independence? What on a, on a very practical, you know, rubber meets the road kind of perspective, how do we get there? And maybe to expand the question is it going to be different the way we achieve this or the way we pursue it, however you want to phrase it, going to be different for us depending on what our life circumstances are? Is it different for, a, you know, a younger stay-at-home mom versus uh, a woman that's got some high-powered professional career versus someone who's already retired or just about to? I know that's kind of a broad, vague question, but hopefully you get what I'm what I'm trying to ask. Sure. Uh, the thing about achieving this mindful financial independence is that I think that uh, women in our society, and whether it's because of the way we're socialized, because of the way uh, we're wired, um, I think that we're in a much better position to do this than men tend to be. Uh, and I think it's because um, women are so often asked to multitask in all aspects of our lives. Um, you know, we are the ones who are generally, you know, juggling household management and um, and work at the same time and, you know, have you know, recognized like, oh, you know, my daughter has a birthday party to go to that weekend that my husband's going to be out of town. Um, that kind of mental labor makes it easier 
I think, for women to recognize the true cost of money. So, for instance, on, you know, if if you've got something like that, you know, you're you're working professional, you're married to another working professional, your um your child has a birthday, uh, birthday party at the same time that your other child has a swim lesson. For a lot of women, it's easier to say, like, okay. I'm going to need to, you know, pay our babysitter to take Susie to the birthday party while I take Junior to the <laughs> to the swim lesson because my husband's out of town whereas a lot of men would be like, well that's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous expense. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, depending on who you're talking to, obviously I don't want to paint too broad a stroke. So, I think that women are in a in a good position because they do have to do so much kind of cost benefit analysis and uh, juggling of things. So they're used to this recognition that money is more than the dollar amount. Money represents more than that, and uh, they have a better sense of the cost of money. So that's one aspect of it. Now, as to how it looks for different stages in life and you know, depending on what your circumstances are, that is all going to kind of change how forward focused or present focused you are. So someone who is close to retirement, by definition, needs to be a little bit more focused on the future in terms of like, okay, we usually go on a pretty big vacation every year, but I think I want to skip that this year, next year, and the year after since retirement's coming in in about four or five years just to see how much that extra money beefs up my my retirement account. And, you know, we'll do a staycation or we'll do something a little bit less elaborate. So I've got that extra couple of grand that can go into my uh, retirement account. Whereas someone who is a young professional is probably going to be a little bit more present focused than future focused because they have more time to let compound interest do its work. So if they're just regularly putting money aside into retirement, they can think about how can I use the money that I'm making right now to make my life better, to make my life easier, and I can let the money that I'm investing you know, even if I'm not completely maxing out my 401k, I can let that compound over time and that let that worry a little bit about the future as long as I keep doing that investing and keep increasing the amount I'm investing every year. And by increasing, I don't mean like, you know, you're going to go from 5,000 to 15,000, like um, whatever you can afford now, increase by 1% every year until you're maxing it out or 1% every six months, you know, or every time you get a raise. And so that is a way to, you know, keep that building going without really feeling the loss. And then for someone who is like a stay-at-home mom, the question there uh, comes about there's two different futures that you're planning for. There's like the far in advance future of when you're retired. And then there's the kind of more immediate future of once your kids no longer need you on such a visceral day-to-day level, whether that means they're going to elementary school or that means that they're, you know, finally going to high school and can uh, drive themselves to school. So planning ahead for that future is also very important, as is the retirement future, because there are no guarantees in marriages. There's no guarantees anywhere in life. But for stay-at-home moms, I think it's very, very important for them to have, you know, contingencies available, you know, something that allows them to keep their skills up to date while they're staying home with their kids, um, even on a minor level. So for instance, the first year that I stayed home with my son, when I still thought I might go back to teaching, I taught religious school at our synagogue. And so, you know, it wasn't the same as teaching high school English, but it kept my skills sharp. 
And it gave me a sense of purpose that only took about three or four hours of my week every week. And, you know, it was also very good for my husband to have like that one-on-one time with our son. And so those are the sorts of things that I think would be an important part of mindful financial independence for someone who is a stay-at-home parent, because they need to recognize that independence sometimes does not come partnered. Um, It should. And I I really wish that, I don't mean it should in terms of like, if you're not partnered, it should be, but meaning that uh, if marriage vows have been exchanged and if, you know, you have decided to stay home for the, the benefit of the whole family, it should mean that you're taken care of financially if anything goes goes kaput in the marriage, whether that means like, you know, the, the metaphorical bus hits the the breadwinner or if the breadwinner decides to, you know, end the marriage or something else happens. Yeah, it's funny because there's such a tension there of we don't go into relationships planning for them to end, but, you know, all evidence is out there in the world that sometimes they do. And so, I don't think that Mm -hmm. uh, thinking toward that future, like you've been talking about, is any in any way to be interpreted as you know planning for your exit strategy or anything like that. It's just it would be being realistic that Mm -hmm. how I feel today about you know wanting to stay home full time might not be how I feel about it you know, five years from now, or uh, my spouse could get ill or injured and I'm needed to step up and help contribute to the income, even if the relationship stays strong. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that um, is is not a bad thing or any sort of admission that marriage is tenuous. It's simply, I would think, kind of being Uh, pragmatic and realistic that we don't always know what the future holds and uh, keeping those skills sharp or developing marketable skills for a potential future job or, or career is not a bad thing. It's also something that I think is very important for stay at home parents in particular in that having a, purpose that's outside of your family, even if family is your highest purpose. You know, I was someone who I knew from toddlerhood that I was going to be a mom one day. Um, Never question in my mind. So family is so important to me. But at the same time, if I do my job well, my kids will leave. <laughs> you know, the 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 goal is for them to not need me anymore at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of this discussion and part of this mindfulness is about appreciating what you have in the moment while working towards a a different future. Uh, And so that might seem to be unrelated to money, but it is a very important part of thinking through what your mindful financial independence looks like. And so in some parts of your life, mindful financial independence might mean having the ability to take time away from paid employment so you can stay home with your kids or you can stay with ailing parents as uh, as they are, you know, um, coming closer to the end of their lives. It also might mean knowing there are some periods of your life when you are going to have to work and you can like embrace the importance of that mission in your life 
and the money that that allows you to 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 bring in and recognize that that's just a different season as humans we have this tendency to think of everything as like forever endless <laughs> i know when my my eldest did not sleep for the first 18 months of his life i mean the child was awake the entire time <laughs> Um, there were times when I was like, well, when he goes to college, I'll get a nap. <laughs> um, even though, you know, I obviously knew he was not going to always be a bad sleeper. I obviously knew I would get, um, rest eventually, but I was so in the thick of it. I couldn't see past my own tiredness, my own, you know, zombie brain of, of being, um, just so fatigued. But recognizing that every moment that we're in is 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 temporary um not only helps us appreciate the moments better and feel more gratitude for for the little moments it also helps us better prepare for the future when you know that squirmy toddler who doesn't sleep has become a snarky teenager <laughs> <laughs> who sleeps all the time who sleeps all the time <laughs> yeah that's so true i mean my path to becoming a lawyer came out of exactly that that kind of thinking back when, you know, I had five kids under the age of uh, 13 or whatever it was, um, and I was home full-time and happy being full-time for many years. And I, I literally recall a a time when I was in the laundry room folding clothes and got to thinking about the fact that, well, even if I keep having kids, at some point, they're all going to grow up and leave me. And what am I going to do with myself then? And that led to me thinking, you know what, I, I think I want to go back to school, start taking some classes and prepare for that day when they all break my heart and, <laughs> and you know, leave me and go off and have lives of their own. Mm -hmm. And from that very thinking at a time when I had no desire to do anything you know, other than be home with my kids. I was homeschooling them and all that sort of thing. But I, you know, I just had that realization that they're not always going to be here for me to homeschool. Mm -hmm. You know, what am I going to do with my time then? So I think that's that's a, a really important thing to think about. I wanted to ask you about, uh, on this concept of mindful financial independence, you have written in the past about the what you call the five building blocks of mindful financial in, independence. And I wonder, you know, is there a way that you could give us just maybe a real quick overview of what those building blocks are and, and what what that's all about? Sure. So um, I kind of built my idea of mindful financial independence around the practice of mindfulness. And there are, you know, five precepts to what it means to be mindful. And that is uh, paying attention in the present moment without reaction, without judgment, and with open-hearted compassion. And each one of those is very, very important. So the paying attention, it's very easy for us to just kind of zoom through life, you know, trying to check things off the to-do list, you know, whatever it is. And so taking the time to be like, where am I? What's happening? You know, I, I noticed this with, uh, for instance, I love to cook. I love food. And there will be times where I make something I really, really love. And I realize like three bites in, like I haven't tasted it. And so it's like, stop. I want to pay attention. How does it feel on my tongue? 
what does it taste like? What does it smell like? And then the other aspect of uh, paying attention is in the present moment, especially with money, we tend to ruminate on the past and on the future. So we ruminate on the past because we are thinking about past financial mistakes we've made and like, darn it, if I only I hadn't done that, or if only I had done this, I'd be okay now. Or we kind of ruminate on the future, like, oh, am I going to be okay? Will I have enough to retire? Are we going to be able to send our kids to college? You know, whatever kind of financial concerns you've got. And so that's why it's so important to bring your, your attention to the present moment. So if you're paying attention in the present moment, you, you realize like, all I want to do is like, just go on a shopping spree on Amazon or go to Target and just spend, spend, spend. So stop, pay attention, like, okay, what am I feeling? right now in the present moment. Where am I feeling it in my body? And then the next two is without reaction and without judgment. So the reaction is, you know, if you realize you you are just itching to, you know, drop $300 at Target, your reaction might be like, okay, I'm cutting out my credit cards <laughs> or, you know, something else like that. You want to pay attention and instead of reacting to it, just let it be. Similarly, you don't want to judge yourself. You know, any impulse that we have, there is something that we need underlying that impulse. And if we judge ourselves for those impulses, so if we judge ourselves for wanting to go on a shopping spree, we're not going to get to the bottom of what that impulse is covering, what the need is that we that uh, we're feeling that the target shopping spree will will fulfill. So don't judge yourself. Just kind of act like an anthropologist of your own feelings. Where is this coming from? Why do I feel like going to Target will fix everything, or at least temporarily? And then the with open-hearted compassion, one of the most profound things I've done for myself as an adult is learn to respond to myself as compassionately as I try to respond to my kids. So when I am having, you know, an impulse that I know is not a good impulse and then I'm I'm thinking like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I shouldn't do that. I know better. Why am I doing this? I should be able to, I should, should have, I think, would I talk to my kids that way? No, I wouldn't. I mean, not on my, not on my good days anyway. <laughs> uh, there are the days where my hair turns to snakes, but I, those are few and far between. But I try to say like, what's underneath of that? Why do I feel that way? It's okay to feel that way. You know, the 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 important thing is how you act based on these things. And it's okay to feel like you know, shopping spree is going to make everything better. It's okay to feel like a, a big idiot for, for making a mistake. But I don't need to beat myself up about it. I can just look at it and say, you're doing just fine. You're doing as best you can with what you have. And you can always make good choices starting right now. And so all of that together kind of gives you a blueprint for kind of reconstituting these financial impulses that might be a bit disordered, that might lead you to making decisions that go against your um, financial goals or that uh, kind of kneecap your ability to uh, take care of yourself and your kids in the way that you want to. They're hard to remember in the moment, but if you just kind of focus on like pay attention in the present moment, without reaction, without judgment, and with open-hearted compassion. And just try to talk to yourself the way that you would talk to your child who is hurting or talk to your best friend who is hurting. Uh, you're going to have a lot better than just trying to quash 
any kind of negative impulses or even positive ones. I mean, so for instance, you might be in, offered a um, a promotion at your job and you find yourself going like, well, I should say yes, but your stomach hurts. You know, if you stop and pay attention to the present moment without reaction, without judgment and with open hearted compassion, you could realize your, your stomach ache is telling you, I really don't want the promotion. I like where I am. I just feel like I should take it because there's more money. But do we need the more money? Why am I making myself unhappy for a promotion I don't want? So that can kind of help you be much more mindful about the decisions that you make in the financial realm and elsewhere to help you create this life that's going to feel good and feel like yours, that you own it rather than it being something you're following. I love that. As you said, it's a beneficial approach to everything in life, not just money. But for a lot of us, and I'm I'm raising my hand, although I'm a, a well-educated professional woman, I feel very much out of my depth and very uncertain and and not incompetent, but just not very, uh, very competent when it comes to financial matters like investing and things like that. I will confess that as a, a strong, uh, well-educated professional woman, I have no idea where our money is. My husband handles it and I trust him. I would trust him with my life, but that's not, you know, it's not particularly wise of me to take that approach. And he's constantly trying to say, here, come and look at this. Let's talk about this. Show me this. And I'm like, ah, I'm not listening because I feel, I feel very anxious when I, when I think about money, particularly now as we're getting closer to the time when I'll retire from my legal practice, when I start thinking about it, I get anxious and all the things you were talking about earlier about, you know, what if we run out of money? What if, what if, what if, what if? So for people like me who, who get overwhelmed or anxious about things like investing or where, where our retirement money should go or any of those sorts of things or how much should we be saving for this or that, where do I start? What can you tell people like me who feel the way that I do about money but want to be more confident and more competent and more responsible? And there are a couple of, of things that uh, I think are at play here. The first is that women have traditionally been shut out of financial conversations. So that is the source of a lot of the angst that I see among women when it comes to money. That also has in some ways become a bit of a superpower because women are actually statistically better investors than men are. And that is in part because since women have traditionally been shut out of finance, all of us have this sense of like, I am not sure about how to do this. And so because of that, when we do invest, we take our time and we do our research. Whereas men are statistically much more likely to go, oh, um, I heard about this thing over the water cooler. Let's let's put money in it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing that I think is helpful to kind of change the way you look at your, your financial anxiety. I truly believe that our greatest strengths are also our greatest weaknesses and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So when you feel anxious about money, like kind of lean into it. I'm like, I feel anxious about this. I feel like this is something I don't know how to do and I'm scared that it's not going to work out. So kind of lean into it. Like, well, what is it that makes me feel anxious? How could I feel even just a tiny bit better? 
Mm. Well, I'd feel a tiny bit better if I understood like how much we have and just start there. Or if I understood what it's going to look like when we retire, like what that's going to be. And so, you know, you could take a, a meeting with your uh, financial advisor and just be like, just break it down for me. Or, you know, if you don't have a financial advisor, whoever's handling your money, break it down for me. What's this going to look like? How is it going to work? Yeah. So that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect that I think is really important for all of us to remember is that money isn't real. It's a, it's a construct that we all have collectively decided is valuable. Mm -hmm. So when you come to the, the realization that money isn't real, then you start thinking like, okay, so it could change at any moment. If, for example, the zombies rise from the dead <laughs> from their <laughs> graves, the dollar will fall and whatever you have in your account will be meaningless because, you know, we're all going to be scavenging for things as we're fighting <laughs> off the army of the undead. Um, for a more, um, you know, realistic possibility, I drew a great deal of inspiration and hope uh, from an odd place. There's a, a graphic novel called Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which is about his father's experiences. Uh, his father was named Vladek, um, his experiences in the concentration camps during World War II. And Vladek was a very skilled business person. He was the type of person who was very good with money. He was very good at making deals. Um, he was just kind of a born entrepreneur. So even though the Nazis took away all of his worldly goods and all of his money, he found ways to still kind of basically set up a business for himself and either get money or other valuable things for himself and for his wife to help them survive through the Holocaust. Hmm. Reading that, which I, I read when I was about 20, it made me realize that everything can be taken away. There are no guarantees, but I can't be taken away from me. I am me. I have my skills. And no matter what happens, I know I can rely on those skills. So, you know, if I'm fighting off zombies, <laughs> I know that I'm good at allocating resources in a way that's going to be effective. And that's something that I think a lot of the people who get very anxious about money forget. They put the agency on the money. Like, oh, the money can take care of me. There'll be enough money that I'll be okay for the rest of my life. But you're going to be okay no matter what because you're you and you have your unique skills and abilities. And whether or not those line up with the skills that we call being good with money in our current society, that doesn't change the fact that you have those skills and abilities. And you are also perfectly capable of learning more about money and kind of folding that into your skills and abilities to help you survive and thrive through whatever happens next. That is very encouraging and, and thought-provoking response. And I appreciate hearing that. I think I had never thought about it in that way, but I, I like what you're saying there. There is so much more I would love to ask you and love to talk with you about, but um, we can't have a three-hour-long podcast episode. <laughs> so so maybe I'll have to just uh, prevail upon you to come back another time in the future and we can talk about some more things. And I also look forward to reading a couple of your books that uh, that I've ordered. In the meantime... If someone who's listening wants to learn more about the things you're talking about or has a question for you uh, and wants to see what you're doing, 
where can they connect with you online? Where's the best place for them to do that? Uh, so you can find me at my website, emilyguyberkin.com. And that's um, E-M-I-L-Y-G-U-Y-B-I-R-K-E-N.com. And there you'll find links to everything that I'm doing. Um, I've got uh, links to my freelance work that I, I write for a number of different people all over the, the web, uh, links to all five of my books, as well as my, my personal blog. There's also some links to, um, I've got a couple of side projects. Um, my sister and I have just launched a podcast called Deep Thoughts About Stupid <laughs> which is a uh, deep dive into pop culture, um, because as you might have been able to tell, I, I think very deeply about things in, um, I think, kind of unusual ways. My sister has a has a similar uh, mindset. And so we love uh, bringing our our uh, way of thinking to things like the Twilight Saga, the Muppets, um, the Princess Bride, Ghostbusters, <laughs> stuff like that. So if you're interested in, uh, there's not a whole lot about money or productivity in there, but there are some uh, kind of profound uh, insights into the human condition as described by Miss Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that sounds great. I'm definitely going to look for that and subscribe so I can, uh, it, it sounds like it'll be fascinating. Uh, and we will put links to your website and all these other things into the show notes for this episode. So if someone who's listening, um, you know, is driving or on the treadmill or something and can't write it down, they'll be able to find everything there. Before we go, I would ask you this. So many of the women, if not most of the women who listen to this particular podcast are looking for help, maybe some encouragement in getting things done and making a life that matters as each of us defines it for herself, thinking about how financial matters fit into that objective of accomplishing the things that are important and making a, a meaningfully productive life. Do you have any last words for that woman who maybe is just looking for a little, uh, an idea or a word of encouragement in her journey towards a, a making a life that matters? What would you say to her? Uh, I think the important thing about money in, in talking about making a life that matters is to remember that it is a tool and it is not something that you measure yourself by. So, you know, in the same way that you're you're not going to decide whether or not you're doing well based on the number of hammers you have in a toolbox <laughs> or based on, you know, the, uh, I don't know, number of throw pillows you have on a couch, uh, you don't need to measure your life by your finances or your financial situation or anything like that. It is simply the means to an end and the end is the meaningful life. And I think most people kind of know that somewhere, um, but our culture spends so much time telling us that money matters in a moral or kind of uh, virtuous way. Uh, and it doesn't. It's simply the system we use to make things go. And so make your life what you want it to be using the tools that you have at your at your disposal and you know sometimes that means getting more tools sometimes that means getting a higher paying job or or you know moving to a lower cost of living area but ultimately it is not anything that you are going to be worrying about on your deathbed so focus on the things that matter most like time with your kids um time with your your hobbies time outdoors um, time traveling, whatever it is that means most to you. Great reminder, great advice for all of us. Emily, thank you so much for being with me today and, and, and for this conversation. 
Thank you for having me. I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to talk with Emily and to hear her thoughts on financial independence. If you're interested in learning more about the work that she's doing, definitely check out her website, connect with her on her social media channels, and consider checking out one or more of her books. We'll have links to all those things in the show notes for this episode. But in the meantime, what do you think? Do you have any questions or comments for Emily or for me? I'd love to hear from you. I know she would as well. You can share your questions or thoughts in the comment section of the show notes for this episode, which again, you will find at theproductivewoman.com slash 468. You can also post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page, or if you're a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, that's always a great place to continue these conversations. This group is a private group where we can meet up and interact more, directly ask questions, share information, insights, and encouragement, and continue the conversations about making lives that matter as we each define it for ourselves. If you are a woman who listens to this podcast and you're not a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, I invite you to join us there. You can find the group on Facebook or go to theproductivewoman.com slash group and um, you can click the join button. Notice that there will be a couple of questions for you to answer. Please do answer those. I'm kind of protective of this community. Unfortunately, as we all know, there are trolls on Facebook who try to get into groups just to cause trouble. And so please answer the questions or if you have any concerns, uh, contact me directly, message me directly on Facebook or by email and let me know you want to join and who you are. And I'd love to welcome you there. I think that's it. Remember for listeners of this podcast, Calm is offering that exclusive offer, 40% off their premium subscription Go to calm.com slash TPW to, to learn more. That's calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash TPW for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. And thank you so much to Calm for continuing to support the Productive Woman podcast and productive women and men everywhere. And that, my friends, is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and with Emily. I don't take it for granted. I value your time, and I hope you found something in this episode that was helpful to you. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself, and go make your life matter. Mm -hmm.